Hey, listeners, do you fucking love music? Because we do. And if you fucking love music, please consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash on the record music, where for just $5 a month, you can have access to our private podcast where we go in depth on albums, do extended album reviews, do impromptu shows, do live shows, legacy albums, lots of great content on the Patreon, on the private podcast, because we want to share our love of music with the entire world. Look, it's really fucking easy these days to put out a video on YouTube and say, here's why this band sucks, or here are the worst songs out today, or or this song or this album is just crap. It's all clickbait. And that's not who we are. We love music. and We love sharing music. We love talking about music. We are musicians. We are music listeners. We go to concerts. We go to festivals. And that's what we want to spread to the world. And you can help us do that. If you believe these same things that I'm talking about right now, please consider joining us on Patreon. We know you have a choice with what to do with your money. And we hope for just $5 a month, you consider supporting us so we can continue to spread this message and continue our mission of just fucking rocking. So if you would, please go to patreon.com slash on the record music and join us. Now let's get fucking rocking. Hello, hello. You are listening to On The Record Music, a music podcast for those who just fucking love music. In today's episode, we are taking on part two of our conspiracy of rock, Are The Beatles The Band Clatu? Today, we are going in-depth into the album and doing a track-by-track review and highlighting a few points along the way that sound a lot like The Beatles and were big in a lot of the conspiracy talk that we had last week. If you would, at the end of the episode, or right now if you're feeling generous, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice little review. It would be much, much appreciated. You can also find us on social media at OTRM Podcast on Twitter and On The Record Music on Instagram. Thank you once again for listening and hope you enjoy today's show. They hand you a joint as you walk in. It's like having a leadoff hitter that hits 210. Well, you know, Jesse... You're wrong because you can never have enough guitar solo. How's that high life doing? <laughs> it's empty. <laughs> oh, love it. And we're on the record, a music podcast where we talk all things music, topics, album reviews, concert reviews, and everything else under the sun. I am your co-host, Jesse Drager here. My co-host is out there, Ben Ringhofer. Let's hear your pretty voice there, Sonny. Hey, Jesse. Hey, everyone. How y'all doing? Welcome to the sunrise of Sunday, my friend. We are uh, we're here uh, to uh, kind of talk some more music this week. I'm so excited this week to talk. Uh, it's kind of a part two of our uh, previous episode uh, involving the controversy of the Beatles. Are they Claude too? But first, do you have anything a week in music this week uh, to discuss, Ben? Yeah, a little bit of exciting news for us yeah. in general. So the the day that this podcast comes out, so this podcast will come out Friday, January thirty first. One more time, Friday, January thirty first, two thousand twenty, is when this podcast is coming out. So if you're listening to it on Friday tonight, Jesse and I are going to Temples here in Chicago. So Jesse and I will be together for the first time in a long time to check out a concert together. And then when we get back, we're going to do a concert review right on the spot so we're going to come back we might be a little buzzed we might be a little high who knows and we're just going to talk about the concert talk about our experiences with temples and everything in between there so i'm excited for that one that will come out the following week so that will come out in february 
a week from this Friday. The February 7th episode. Yep. No, so this there is going to be is. great. Uh, I'm going to be flying through uh, from Minneapolis to Chicago to see Ben and the Temples. And then I fly back the next morning to see the Temples in Minneapolis. So this is going to be a very action-packed weekend for me as well. So this is a, this is a great opportunity, and it gives us a chance to do our first uh, concert review um, on air here for our podcast. So pretty crazy. Um, part of that, my weekend that's coming up too, is I bought, uh, Michael Kiwanuka tickets, um, at the electric fetus and I'll be going to Michael Kiwanuka two days after seeing, uh, temples in Minneapolis. So it's going to be a pretty action packed weekend, including the Super Bowls in there. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's going to be hell packed. That's a, that's a jam packed weekend. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yep, I am excited. I can't wait. It's going to be a wonderful week. That's a great way to kick off February, um, the, the romantic month, I think, isn't it? Because of Valentine's Day. So I think my love for music is going to be all that I need for this Valentine. What about my love for you? Don't you need that too? What was that? <laughs> <laughs> I said, what about my love for you? Don't you need that too? Um, you know, on occasion, you know, you're like the side piece, Ben. You're like the the prize, gold prize on the side. So you're just you're, that you're was a like the classic. Piece. Like I'm guessing you didn't hear me because of the internet. Yes, so, yes. Uh, that's what I'm gonna blame it on. <laughs> but that was the total classic. Like, oh, I love you. What? Sorry, I didn't hear you. I love you. I oh. can't hear you. Oh, yeah, yeah. it's like it's like John Belushi and, you know, Blues Brothers when he's begging Princess Leia not to kill him. And he's like, oh, I love you, baby. I love you. I love you. And then he puts her in his arms and he kisses her and he looks at Dan Aykroyd and goes, all right, let's beat it. <laughs> uh, just telling you all oh, that I want to hear. Trying to back my way out of our relationship. Gosh. Well, so we're here that's, to That's do what it. I took out of it. <laughs> no, Exactly. So we're here to uh, do part two of our Claw 2, diving into the controversy, is this the Beatles or not? Um, a little bit, um, if you have not watched part one yet, please do go back um, to last week's episode and kind of listen on into the conspiracy. We gave you kind of a lot of uh, what the people thought were uh, tips and clues about uh, this band, Claw 2, being the Beatles. Um, we didn't really... Um, dive too much into the music. We wanted to save that for this album review for this week because we both kind of feel, um, at least talking from last week, Ben, um, that you know we both really like this album. So it's like it definitely deserved two different things. And uh, one of the main things was talking about that controversy or the the conspiracy um, behind uh, whether Cloud Two is the Beatles and just kind of interesting facts uh, that we took away from a radio program that my my dad and uncles had recorded. Um, what was your, uh, kind of feedback on that episode that we talked about and the, the conspiracy? Well, it's pretty wild because like I said in the last episode, it sounds so much like the Beatles and there's so many clues that are pretty much undeniable. There's some skepticism I have because like I said, a lot of the things that are presented as clues could easily be created by anyone. You don't have to be the Beatles to create these clues and to connect these dots for people, but it still sounds a lot like the Beatles and there's a lot, a lot of evidence that would point to it being the Beatles just based on what they were doing in their own personal lives as well. And the 
hints that they were dropping themselves. So it seemed like in some way, shape or form that they might have been in on it. So I think it's a really cool conspiracy. But regardless of what happens, it's some great music that we get to talk about. Yeah, definitely. And that's the main reason that uh, there's a big controversy over this is because this band Cloud 2 is so secretive. They just wanted the music to stand out. So it's like, oh, well, it could just be musicians or it could really be the Beatles saying, you know, don't put our name on this, but listen to what we're creating right now. So, I mean, there's many different avenues that it can go down. So, you know, uh, feel free to listen back to our part one, but uh, we're going to go into the album review pretty much uh, right now, aren't we, Benny? Yeah, let's jump right into it. Track number one is Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft. So we get this nice little nature like walk up with this. So it's it's a person walking through nature. So it's just this kind of creaking and you got these beautiful crickets, kind of a walk up, and then all of a sudden you get this vocal that just pops in kind of seemingly out of nowhere, you know, but it's just a silent kind of kinda of like a wind kind of like brushing you know, against your ear almost. Yeah, this is, so this very beginning part, the first 50 seconds of the the nature walking, is one of the first clues that was presented in that radio program. And during that section is when, if you play it backwards, you hear this bug or this noise saying, we quit, we quit. Mm -hmm. And this was something on our last episode that I took the file of that song and I played it backwards in the episode so if you go back and listen you can hear it backwards it does sound like the words we quit but it's very you know anything backwards it's hard to tell unless you recorded something forward and then flipped it backwards in today's Mm -hmm. digital age but this was obviously before you had that ability to do that so you know you would try to have to essentially say it backwards or i don't know what their technique was do you know what like the beatles technique was for recording backwards so you could hear those things yeah uh definitely um so what they would do um in the history behind it um, i can get a little bit into it but what they would do is basically you take your your tape and then you reverse it and play it kind of like in a backwards motion and then it will come in and it'll have that sound so that's how um they would actually do it so they would take small little snippets like actual uh, probably about 20 seconds worth of tape and they would create a small little sample, reverse that tape, play it forwards, and it would have that reverse effect. John Lennon uh, famously did this, I think, to the song Rain. Um, He got home. He was a little high. He was going to listen to the day's work, and it came in through backwards, and so he brought it to the studio the next day. George Martin's like, yeah, we can make that happen. (laughs) You know, but they had to play around with it because they haven't done that before. Right. So I guess my question is, like, if you want to play it backwards and to say Paul is dead like today I could just record into my microphone and say Paul is dead and then take that file in our editing software reverse it so it comes in backwards Mm -hmm. like and then Mm -hmm. if you were to take the whole track and play it backwards then you'd hear my voice clearly how did they get that then because they didn't have that technological capability. Well, so they were working with reel-to-reel tape, you know. Um, So back then, you know, if you just, the way that you make the the tape roll against the playhead, so you you have one continuous motion, right? 
Sure. So you have one way it goes on. Well, if you reverse that aspect of it um, by flipping the tape over to the other head and then switching the blank uh, reel to the other side, but you flip the tape around and play right. it through that way, that's how they would get it. So I might not be following uh, your No, I I, I, I I get that. My question is, like, if you wanted to have Paul, the words Paul is dead show up when you play it backwards, would they have to record them trying to say Paul is dead backwards when they actually oh, recorded it? Yeah, yeah, that's what you would do. It's kind of like subliminal messaging. It's like you, you record at sure. different levels you know, for your message, and then you bring that all the way down, um, and then you record your music or your your speech you know over that so sure it, it's that different level of it yeah we got there we're on the same page now yeah we now got we're there. there now we're there so yes but if we're going to talk about like some of that uh music that's in there the opening a lot of um what people you know they'll say hey this is so beatles because it reminds me of this song and whatnot that opening is very much so like um across the universe so a lot of people think that that's what it's tied to as well it's like a nod to across the universe and then calling occupants you know they think there's a tie in there that's another clue that um is like just kind of like an old standard with this thing i don't think we mentioned it in um in, in our last podcast if i remember right so mm-hmm. um but it's very huge and then you get that voice that comes in and it sounds just like john lennon's does it not it does i also thought that the voice that comes in and this was one of my far out there theories on who this could possibly be, but this music sounds also a lot like Jeff Lynn in ELO. And so part of my thought was like, maybe this is Jeff Lynn because, and then I looked into it a little bit more and Jeff Lynn had a relationship with all of the Beatles. And at one point John called ELO the sons of the Beatles. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Jeff Lynn has also been featured on, all of the Beatles solo albums more recently, I think, than at that this time when this album came out. But I thought that was kind of an interesting little tidbit. Well, you know, it's funny that you bring that up now, because when you look at the Beatles history, when they were recording, they would take things from other artists that was their, um, you know, the contemporaries. I mean, Brian Wilson, they borrowed from John Lennon's known to steal from Dylan, <laughs> you know, um, the British blues a little bit uh, in the White Album. I mean, they, they were borrowing sounds all the time from things around them, you know. Um, so it wouldn't be surprising if they were borrowing from Jeff Lynn and uh, ELO's very big, powerful, big, brassy sound, because this song encompasses very something similar to what ELO might uh, produce. Mm-hmm. So that was a very good uh, good, good find. I think one thing I noticed too about this song is it ties into the name of the album. So 347 EST was the time that, and this was mentioned in the part one, was when scientists around the world were sending out signals to try to connect with or reach some other living being somewhere, just to kind of reach out and see if there's any sign of contact. So this song could kind of reference that because... That's literally what they were doing was calling occupants, not necessarily of craft, but they were trying to contact interplanetary people mm-hmm. and people in other solar systems. So this song kind of directly re- relates to the title of this album. Oh, very much so. And if we're going to get away from the Beatles references, one of the more striking musical aspects in this song, I think, comes in at like 248, where he 
Hinkum says, um, we've been observing in your earth, you know, that part. Um, that really spacey sound, it just has a spacey sound and a great little vibe to it and a great vocal change uh, in the effects of this. And it doesn't come back ever. It's just that one little hit and it's that, you know, it's just that kind of play in with what the title of the song is and the, the idea of contacting other people. It's like you get a response back and that's what that little vocal effect just feels wonderful to kind of see, you know? Yeah. This song's kind of cool because it has a few different movements and a second or third movement starts shortly after that section right around 3.30 and that's when it really kind of kicks into that Beatles sound. You have that piano just kind of thumping down every quarter note or eighth note just dunk, 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 dunk. and that mm-hmm. kind of just sound. It's kind of your classic palm piano sound. So I can see you know, right off the bat why people would have thought this may have been the Beatles. Oh, definitely. But, you know, if you look at this, for me, um, this is going to sound really weird and probably obsessive, but the reality is I'm going to say it. Uh, (laughs) But if you listen to the rhythm, it's Ringo all the the way on drums in this. Mm. And that's that particular spot is kind of like a little bit of a lead in into what there's that probably like that little solo that kind of gets into it and you can feel it. But then they get the hand claps a little bit later on. Yeah. the hand claps come in about like oh, I didn't have a I didn't have a note on when they came, but you know the hand claps come in and it yep. really is sounds so Beatlesque on the hand claps. It sounds stupid that I'm saying that because hand claps should be hand claps, but it's the way that they're produced and it's the way that's like they're performed and placed in the song. And I think that this that's a really strong indication to me. One thing, so I noticed this, and I might be making a stretch here, but. If you start the recording at 3.47, so 3 minutes and 47 seconds, which corresponds with the name of the album, is when he says, please, Mr. Interstellar Policeman, won't you give us a sign that we reached you? And I thought that was cool. I don't know if this was intentional or not, because the timing's just a little off. It might start at 3.46, but... It seems like right at 347 is when he's asking, won't you tell us if we've reached you? Which is kind of cool because at 347 EST is when they sent out those signals. So to put that in the song of saying, won't you tell us if we've reached you right at about 347 or just thereafter, it would almost be like they shot out the signals and then they're saying, hey, have we reached you yet? That's fucking sweet. I never even... I didn't even think of looking at that before. That was pimp, dude. That's that is great. Yeah, I you, I figured it's like you, maybe there's heard... something at 3:47, so I just went and listened to that, and that's what I found. Damn, that that was beautiful. You earned your fucking gold star of the day, brother. Gold star, <laughs> baby. That's me. Oh, and then uh, just for a note, 3:25 is when the hand claps come in, where I think that they're the Beatles. So just before that is when they pop in. Sure, which is so fantastic. But one of the one of the great finds uh, in the song is about four fifty three into the song here. The way that they hit and lead up to the point when he says "World Contact Day," and it just kind of phases out. Mm-hmm. Oh, that always, as always, from the first day I've listened to it, has sent shivers down my spine. It just the way that it it just feels like a true proclamation of "Hey, we come in peace," almost, and it's delivered so well. Yeah. And that kind of sets up the final movement, which is kind of a return to the original part of the song. 
and it just has those horns playing as it's kind of just reinforcing the melody and then the vocals come back in calling occupants of interplanetary craft it actually takes a little minor tone switches to a minor tone which is kind of cool mm-hmm. and gets kind of dark almost as the song plays out correct and Lennon has been known for kind of playing like in those kind of uh, the manner of kind of switching you know tones in his in his playing you know including um, uh, because in um, Abbey Road I mean it just it's that kind of chromatic way that he kind of plays around with his music mm-hmm. and that spot is very strong and like, kind of like a Leninist way not the Russian one but yeah. the English one <laughs> which uh, Lennon yeah damn it fucking commie <laughs> All right, comrade, let's go. No, but no, I really think that this one is my favorite song of the whole album for sure because I really do feel like this is the strongest outside of song number four that we'll get into, Sub Rosa Subway. Mm-hmm. This is the strongest all-encompassing um, clue that this is the Beatles or this could very well potential be the Beatles. And sure. I, I think this one comes out strong because that lead vocal sounds like Lennon to me and then that other backing vocal that kind of plays off is a very good McCartney a little bit and then there's a touch of uh, George Harrison I think as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah it's definitely one of those right off the bat you hear it and you're like whoa this could definitely be the Beatles yeah so I tell you what this one is I, I will still say this is my favorite song off the whole album even though there are still several that come in that that give it a good run but this one just to me is is my ultimate favorite and if i if i could this one this one song would get an a plus because i think this is well produced i think this one is excellently mixed it's a great idea they have fun ideas in it like you said there's like three or four movements in this one and it's just it holds up so well you got a transition for me yes i do um instead of uh instead of hearing this uh possible english jam or We'll call it the Toronto Jam. Shall we move on to some uh, other jam? Sure. Track number two, California Jam. Woo! I really like that opening guitar, kind of a pregio and little kind of a call and response with another little guitar that kind of spears through like a like a comet almost. So good. Yeah, nice like flares opening. through. It's like... I think that it must be slides or something mm-hmm. that are creating that pew, pew, pew. It's kind of yeah. cool. Really and cool sound. And, and then it, not to me, goes not right to interrupt the you. Yeah, not to interrupt you there, but that's yep. another thing about Claw 2 in here are those little slides. Harrison was huge on the slides. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I like how that opening is kind of soft and playful, but then it gets into this rocker. You know, it just really kicks in and it's like kind of like that true california sound almost yeah before the energy picks up there's the section where it says bye 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 right around 14 in the intro and that was if you would want to explain that um part of the conspiracy of why it might be the beatles yeah so that one is um for california jam uh, as we discussed in our pro- one episode that was playing the last show that they played in America for the last concert was in San Francisco Candlestick Park, uh, August twenty seventh, nineteen sixty six. They believe that uh, McCartney had written this song, or the Beatles had written the song, uh, as in saying that this is a kind of a 
kind of a nod to that time and saying, well, bye, bye, bye means that they were done touring and, you know, it was that memorable and that exciting for them. So that's where that kind of kind of yeah. kicks in and that opens the song, which you kind of think, ah, you don't, you, you wouldn't probably equate that to an opening of a song, but I guess you are going to California in their minds as they mm-hmm. start open up in there. So uh, saying bye, bye, bye is actually a pretty good idea for the song, but to tie it in with that history is pretty sweet too. Right. I think that's an interesting theory or connection because you kind of have to make a couple big stretches to get there, assuming this is about their last show in California and that they would start the song by saying bye, bye, bye in a way of saying like, we're done with this tour. And I know like this U.S. tour was extensive and exhaustive and because this was when they had screaming fans and they couldn't, you know, they could hardly hear themselves when they played. Um, a few, well, like a year or two ago, the current, 89.3 The Current in Minneapolis, St. Paul, played on, I believe it was on the anniversary of when the Beatles played, the one time the Beatles played in Minnesota, and they played mm-hmm. at the Metropolitan Stadium. So it was the home of the Minnesota Vikings and the Minnesota Twins before the Metrodome opened up in the 80s. And they played the live show and it wasn't long it was like 30 35 minutes so it wasn't they didn't play very long and the screaming was so loud you could hardly hear the music it was insane Mm -hmm. and i'm sure as performers it was frustrating because they couldn't even hear themselves play so i'm sure to them it was kind of a miserable experience it was very much a miserable experience because they are, you know, they want to be the best musicians that they can be. That's kind of like what they went out to do. And, you know, they are the ones that started the whole big arena concerts, basically. You know, playing Shea Stadium to start off in 65 uh, and then playing throughout uh, the next year and a half for them, basically. Actually, only a year because 66. Yeah. Wow. So they only played, they started it all, and uh, they only played for a year in stadiums. Can you imagine that? That's crazy. That's, but, that is crazy. So here's what happened with them on stage performing, uh, just to kind of give a small background, is, you know, you look at that, there was no playback monitor, other than the, the home system was their only source of getting music back thrown at them. So it's sure. like, you know, it's the, and uh, Derek Jeter is up at the plate. You know, that's what yep. they had to listen to. That was their playback. That's not good. Ringo used no. to say, "I." He used to say, "I just watched their little butts up front because I couldn't hear them at all." So Ringo, if you hear him and he's horrible in a lot of these videos, it's because he can't hear them. He's literally looking wow. at their butts or looking at their heads shaking, and he's like, "Okay, I know they're saying yeah, 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 you know, or whatever." So that it was a big drag on them. But that '66 tour is also the tour that they had to um, kind of uh, face um, kind of controversy over John Lennon's uh, uh, "The Beatles Are Bigger Than Jesus" controversy. Mm-hmm. Um, they got death threats, um, you know, quite a lot of bad stuff there, um, and maybe one bad acid trip for Lennon during that time. But um, it was, you know, it was a it was it was high stakes game for them, where they were just sick of not being able to feel like they were doing anything good on stage, and they said, "Fuck that." Sure. One one quick story while we're talking about Beatles touring. So for a few years, in at the end of college and few years out of college, I worked part time for the Minnesota Twins essentially as an usher and one of the gentlemen that I was working with or near that day um, we started talking we ended up talking about music and the Beatles and he got to meet the Beatles when they were on that tour in 1966 in Kansas City and he saw them backstage 
And he said they weren't that outgoing because I'm sure at that time, you know, they were just kind of in the zone of touring. He mm-hmm. said they weren't mean or anything. They just like didn't seem to be too interested in what was going on. But he said one thing that they were obsessed with was cheeseburgers and Coca-Cola. He said they were just <laughs> pounding down cheeseburgers and pounding back Coca-Cola nonstop while he was back there with them. I'm sure he was a kid at the time, but mm. that was like his memory of that, of meeting the Beatles on tour. Jeez. Uh, I guess you don't get really good cheeseburgers out in uh, England anymore, you know? Yeah, and that was his comment. Was like the food wasn't that great in England. So I think over here it's like all of a sudden you're hit with that endorphin rush of fatty foods and mm-hmm. sugary colas. Like, of course, your just body's going to be like, yeah, let's get that. Exactly. Well, that's the that's where John Lennon says that was uh, his fat Elvis days was 65 and 66 because they were over in America a lot. And he was like, we ate a lot. <laughs> I believe that. So so, one, so uh, do you want to go on with that one? Uh, go, I got a couple more things with California Love. Oh, I was just going to build up right um, going into the main song. Just quick talking about the guitars. Yeah. Um, that's the guitar sound there also sounds a lot like the Beatles. It's got that kind of chugging mm-hmm. sound and it kind of reminds me of like back in the USSR or something like that. So very similar sound that you could infer might be the Beatles also. Yeah, there is some uh, guitar tones in here that do sound like Beatles. So I'm glad you noticed that there is one song. I can't remember where my notes are, but um, where the guitar work, I do mention that it doesn't sound Beatlesque kind of everywhere else in the song but it sounds like in one spot so but their guitar work in here is very beatlesque um when you look at uh or when you listen to about 124 in and that female voice kind of kicks in it's such a beautiful sultry kind of a sound and um to kind of tie it back to the beatles a lot of people think that this is linda mccartney um which very much could be because there's other things that we'll talk about in the next song that might involve Wings, uh, Paul McCartney's band. So, but I really love the sound of that female vocal in, and then it, they come back in just a little bit further, about 140 in, and it's just a really nice little thing to have. It feels California-ish almost. So they really got that Beach Boy, uh, you know, California sound. I think, especially with that. Yeah, they nailed that. And just to add on to that point, just alone those vocals, the backup vocals sound great. And then the bass that's playing behind it, it's a it just makes for a really good combo because that bass is just kind of bouncy and, and pulling everything along. And like you said, I think it does a really good job of creating that kind of California dreamy-ish vibe. Yeah, especially when we get to that the little... Uh, you know, it kind of, it, it sounds like a couple of uh, new pornographer songs. You know, uh, it's, yeah. like, it's like, wow, that's where I, that's why I kind of maybe like the new pornographers because they got that really cool little poppy good vocals kind of sound and uh this song just uh, this little spot right there just kind of is awesome but right after the little you know that little ba 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 part uh they got that that mccartney part uh about 230 and he just kind of goes he just kind of goes california love that spot you know? oh yeah and that's the spot that sounds so much like paul like when mm-hmm. i first listened to this album i was like how is that not paul just the way he says California like oh, yeah. there's just no way it's not him 
No, it's it's a hundred percent. And then that little guitar solo that follows it is kind of like McCartney esque, especially for Wings time period. Um, it, mm. it actually holds up. It, it's it's a nice little just kind of riff for about yeah, about ten seconds, eight seconds, right there. But yep. it's very much uh, McCartney esque. Yeah, quick little thing. And then the final point that ties into what we talked about at the beginning with the bye bye byes is the yeah yeah yeahs, mm-hmm. which on the outro just sounds very cool but will you go ahead and explain the theory behind the yeah yeah yes well the yeah yeah yes is uh connected to um just the beatles um initial like she loves you it's kind of the arrival of the beatles and so this is kind of them possibly kind of putting to rest because the way that the yeah yeah yes kind of fade um that's kind of where they see that uh for like a clue into it is kind of just them kind of taking a look back and going yep that was us now we're faded away kind of a way that they look into it so um it's you know a lot of people always kind of see the yeah yeah yes and you know they think the beatles there's only two songs that do really do the yeah yeah kind of thing and that's um that's uh, she loves you and i'll get you in the end oh yeah oh yeah so i mean it's just their 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 first couple of singles that they really actually do use that on but if you know people atone it to them yeah why not you know use that as sure. a clue mm-hmm. <laughs> so i'm gonna be honest with you ben i've been working on this damn transition for about a week <laughs> and i just we're just gonna go right off the fudge tube on this one let's just go to the next one you know all right <laughs> track number three anus of uranus This is a song that you and I can agree with. What a great little intro with that guitar. Just a nice little driving, clean sound. Got a little bit of extra reverb on it. Um, so very British, very Beatles possible. But it's just a clean rocking guitar, and it sounds phenomenal. It does. It's really fun guitar. Kind of reminded me of like an Alice Cooper kind of kind of chugging along. That's kind of what I first picked out. And just kind of the concept of the song seems like something Alice Cooper might write about anyway. <laughs> that or Frank Zappa, actually, is uh, the, yes. the one that I was thinking of originally. But I'm totally glad you said Alice Zappa. Cooper because Cooper would also have a pretty good guitar tone like this on his tune. So mm-hmm. um, so to give you a little bit of uh, background about the Beatles uh, conspiracy with this, it is thought because the vocals are completely different than other Beatles thought of songs, right? Yep. Um, yep. So the vocals, they're thinking that, or at least this was my uncles and my father, I don't recall if they thought somebody's involvement else, like if it was somebody else's conspiracy or not. But my uncles and my dad thought that Anus of Uranus is actually to be Denny Lane of Wings. Um, so Denny Lane would have joined uh, Wings at about late, about 73. Um, and so they think that um, Denny Lane wrote this song and who's backing him is Wings and maybe some Beatles. Um, but also if we go back to California Jam, the guitar solo is very reminiscent of how Denny Lane uh, used to play with Wings as well. So that's where the McCartney kind of connection comes in. Oh. So very reminiscent. So Denny Lane is thought of to be possibly this um, the writer and the performer of this one if this is in, in reality the Beatles because it is completely different vocal than what we've heard. Right. 
Yep. Yeah, there's no question about that, that the vocals are somebody else or someone else that's not a Beatle. Mm-hmm. I do really like, um, like, if you look at about, if you look about one minute into the song, there's this kind of transition into the next um, kind of like verse where it just kind of really, it feels mellow, and then all of a sudden this little kick in kicks in, and it just kind of leads into the next verse, and it's just like, ooh, where did this pick up? I really love that little piece. That is just a nice little get you back into the uh, guitar riff almost, because it's a little more mm-hmm. mellow than what the guitar riff was. So it's like, oop, we got to build you back up and get you involved with that guitar riff one thing of note too on this one is the bass guitar because this one it's so fat and so wet as it just thumps throughout this whole song and kind of carries on that main guitar riff that was brought in at that beginning just the but it's just it's so prominent and so heavy you know kind of feels like an anus of uranus really was that a was that a thermometer joke yeah just you know, big, wet, heavy anus. Yeah, That's what it was. The heavy anus. No, I got to admit, uh, you're right. Uh, I think I noticed the bass most prominently when that guitar solo starts, and we'll talk about that in a second, but that bass yep. is definitely just really, it really pops out like right about there, but how fucking cool is that guitar solo um, for it? To me, uh, it reminds me of Richie Blackmore and Deep Purple. I mean, it was that piercing and that, like, that sexy. Uh, it was really good. Yep. Very piercing, very reminiscent of the 70s style, especially the late 70s. You kind of heard a lot of this kind of tone coming from guitar solos. And I can't put one, maybe Steve Miller, it kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Um, But a very kind of cool sound that came out of this era. And this guitar solo just rips right into it, kind of spacey a little bit. So it fits perfectly really with this song. It's funny that you say uh, Steve Miller because in the late 60s, early 70s, McCartney was actually recording and friends with Steve Miller. Oh, another point. So so there could be another case in that point where it's like him drawing on his contemporaries, McCartney, and he's like, ah, I liked when Steve and I did this, you know, and let's Mm -hmm. let's incorporate it, you know. Yeah. To me, uh, the song ends really cool, too. It's just a gritty song, isn't it? It's just kind of, you know, whatever. So gritty. It's a rock and roll song, but then they still keep the space aspect of the kind of like the phasing out and the the, the riding into the sunset uh, horizon mm-hmm. um, with that little spacey kind of zip at the end. It's kind of crazy. Yep. Yeah, really cool song. And that at the end of that song, too, is like the bass is really fat and heavy. And you can hear it in there, too. So that's really cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a great song. Just the name of it, you have to check it out. Uh, we're going to be playing clips here, of course, but literally this song is, I think, uh, a good top notch. I think the first three songs kick ass. I think they flow very well and uh, lead into probably one of the most important songs on the album. Yes, and in my opinion, one of the best songs on this album. Track number four, Sub Rosa Subway. Just beneath the great white way Alfred Beach works secretly Risking all to write a dream 
course. This is the one song that gave uh, all the uh, all the uproar of seeing "Is This the Beatles Back Together?" Um, Steve Smith, a uh, uh, journal- journalist out of uh, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, heard the song and instantly thought it was the Beatles. So uh, that and Dr. Maravello, um, but uh, that comes up in a couple more songs. Sub Rosa Subway here though starts off with a gorgeous little piano piece. I, I really like the piano work in throughout this whole song, but. The beginning here works great, and then it's got that little um, kind of melodic bass, just kind of you know, just enchanting the whole opening scene of this song. And this is one too. When those vocals come in, you're like, "Come on, dude, this is fucking Paul." There's no way it's not. You know it is. It it it, it it's so hard to actually try to get somebody to sing just like that, and it's right. like 100 spot on. So, um, you know, this is the area I think where they did the voice print, isn't it? This is. So they took, when they were doing this investigation, they took the voice prints of this song and the voice prints of Paul from a Beatles song. I don't know which one. If there was, I don't know if they mentioned that. I don't think they mentioned it, but it was an early, a couple early Beatles songs, and one of them matched almost perfectly. So they tested the voice prints, and I don't know exactly what that means. Do you know what that means, like to test voice prints? Uh, I certainly do not. I've never actually looked into it, but I know people do use it in in a law of court where they've they've had evidence where they've done voice prints and you know it's convicted people. I I don't know. If okay. It, <laughs> I don't know like how it goes. Uh, you know, like especially with seventies technology. Right. So essentially, they they put the tapes up against each other, and it came back as a a match of like, yep, the way this voice plays out, it's the same. So they tested that, and it came back a positive match. And then the person that um, Steve Smith had brought this up to um, said, the voice prints are a match, but Paul McCartney is not in Klaatu. That was her response. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're you know being so subtle, aren't they? <laughs> right. So kind, kind of fun little run around there. But this song itself, I think, is just really cool because there's lots of little details. Um, the song itself is about the construction of New York's first subway and where sub Rosa comes from is it essentially means secret. It's Latin for under the rose, which is regarded as an emblem of secrecy. So this original concept, and I read into the story a little bit is this guy, Alfred beach had this idea to create essentially this underground train and it was powered it was in like an air chamber, so it was kind of powered by wind, and that's why it was called a wind machine, or that's kind of what added to it. So when you hear risking all to ride a dream, his wind machine, that's what this is referring to. And if you're ever in a subway, it kind of feels like a wind tunnel because when the subway approaches, all of a sudden the wind picks up, and you're like, mm-hmm. even if you can't hear the train, you can feel the wind pick up, which is kind of cool, and you're like, okay, the train's coming now, so it'll be here any second. And then sure enough, it roars in. So I thought this was just a cool story and they do a good job on this album. A lot of these songs are really cool stories mm-hmm. and there's a couple more that we'll get into after this, but I just thought the concept of this song itself was pretty cool. No, I agree. This song is just all around, just a wonderful uh, musical and storytelling uh, adventure. Uh, one of the things that I, when I talked about in the last song uh, about Beatle guitars work. Um, this is the song that where I said that in the very beginning, that 15 seconds in, it sounds very, very much just like George Harrison. 
and it's it, it, it just the way that he would do a fill. So it's very good. However, when you listen throughout the rest of the song, I don't really think the guitar work in here is very Beatlesque, and mm-hmm. so I just don't I don't hear the styles of John, George, or Paul really in there the rest of the way. And that's this is the only thing that I would take away from the song that would be negative. Um, if you're going to be doing a Beatles um, a connection, I would say the guitar work is no. It's not like what Beatles um, kind of uh, tendencies are. Sure, there is one part in here so right just before two minutes there's that transition and it's got those bells it goes and that kind of sounds like something from like obla d where it's just like it kind of has that that to me came across very beetle ish Mm -hmm. yeah very much so and also in that in that section it's uh you know you got your like speaking in the background you've got a little bit of extra like sound effects into it people would uh, tie that probably to like yellow submarine costume as well um kind of like that playful kind of stuff or other things off the white album uh, where they kind of had some studio intakes um that part leads into a part that i really love about this song and it's that little break at 215 where they do the hand clap and it's just such a fresh refresher in the song because you're already halfway through the song basically at two minutes and 15 seconds Mm -hmm. uh songs at 4 30 um what a cool little break to kind of like you know like oh we're stopping for the the subway up oh, and then we're going back again you know kind of a cool way to do it yeah super cool and i'm glad you pointed that out because i had that on my notes too just such a cool transition and it's almost like you hit one of those points and you're like we're building this up how do we move it in another direction and it's that kind of creativity that inspires me in my own music writing mm-hmm. is just it's little things like that it's thinking outside of the box not to be cliche but like just a totally unique way to approach a transition and it sounds so cool because it's just the boom 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 and that's it Mm -hmm. yep and it's just like what two seconds and it it's not long really it really enhances the song so much it's just that small detail also when they do the bronzian tunes at the end yep i love how they add the ah over you know behind a few of them and it just is kind of like a comforting sound to it and it's just a nice little touch to what you're you're trying to figure out what the hell they're talking about but yet mm-hmm. you're you're comforted into actually believing whatever they're talking about is actually a cause or it's a, it's, it's a it's a movement to um make something you know and it, it, i think it just is really yep. really nice nice spot yeah so i looked into that because i was i didn't know what that meant either and at the last part of the song so the last section of words as for america's first subway the public scoffed it's far too rude one station filled with victoria's age from frescoed walls and goldfish fountains to bromsian tunes and so what i'm gathering from that is one of the stations or stops was probably very gaudy if it pulled from the victorian age um, where everything was kind of ornate and over the top and Brahmsian tunes is a reference to Johannes Brahms, mm-hmm. who is a composer, and he's most notable for the lullaby song. So do 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 do. Okay. He wrote that, and he composed that. Um, yeah, and in he, I had actually heard of him prior to this, and he's often referred to as one of the three B's of composition. 
So obviously the other two would be Bach and Beethoven, but Brahms also gets thrown in there with those guys as well. Mm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So Brahmsian tunes would refer to his classical music being played throughout that station. And then uh, if we're going to do, so everything comes in threes, obviously, but when you're doing a Mount Rushmore, you need a fourth B, which would be Beatles. Ooh. Now yeah. we're make now we're uncovering new evidence. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Take that, Steve Smith. You missed that one. Ben got it all. <laughs> 30 I, 40 I years later. So when I was listening t- uh, intently to this, I was like, "Hey, I want to see like like how the Morse code works in here." And it's really cool. It it starts at 250. The Morse mm-hmm. code is in the left channel. And then it does its whole message. And then at about 305, 304, it goes to the center mix. And then at about 311, it goes to the right channel. It stays in the right channel for a little bit and it kind of fades slowly before it kind of picks up just as a vulnerability. But what a great way to play with that kind of a mix to do that. Um, it's very hard to, it's very hard to kind of decipher, so you got to turn it all the way up and kind of just really listen. It, really, it swims in your head and it's so cool. It's very subtle, and I'll, I will play this on the episode so those listening can hear it. If you're unable to pick it out, go back and just listen to this song, pull up Spotify or whatever, and listen to the song with some headphones. You'll really be able to hear the Morse code then. Um, you might not be able to pick it up just through this podcast recording because it is subtle, but you can hear it. When I'm listening through headphones, I can definitely hear it. Do you have um, offhand what the Morse code deciphered as uh i do not offhand we addressed it in the previous episode what the message is because someone took the time to decode it and from what i remember it wasn't super it didn't seem super relevant there wasn't Mm -hmm. like an aha like oh it wasn't it's us it's the beatles in the recording of that either um it was some sort of vague something about london skies but I guess the point is it wasn't super noteworthy of like, oh, this could be the Beatles or I could see how this could be the Beatles or them putting in this message. But regardless of what it was, it's pretty cool that it's in there nonetheless. And I have it right here. So the Morse code reads, from Alfred, he thy sharpened ear, a message we do bring. Starship appears upon our sphere. Through London sky comes spring. So it almost seems like it would be a message to Alfred, Alfred Beach, who's building the subway from possibly an interplanetary craft. Mm -hmm. Most likely. And I think that's that's the really cool part about this album. This at least first side is very much so, I think, trying to continuously churn back to the interplanetary craft um, song. Mm-hmm. Um, keeping it, just it in theme kinda, definitely exactly and they do that very very well I think throughout this uh, this run absolutely one last thing even though I shit on the guitars <laughs> by not being Beatles in the song if you listen very very tightly at the end about like three what I have 355 that guitar is mixed deep into the right channel but it is rocking it is going hardcore and it's doing its best, but it's just lost in the mix a little bit. Mm. So, but it is good. Yeah, I, I did not pick that out. 
the first several times that I listened to that. That's pretty cool. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the solo from Anus of Uranus. Just kind of that. Mm-hmm. It's not the same tone, but it's got that same drive and energy to it. Yeah, it's 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 carrying. It's it's trying to be the star of the show, but it's it's still the same. You know, carbon dust in the air, just like everything else around it, and it's it's mm-hmm. trying to get out mm-hmm. there. But it's it's fantastic if you can listen to it. That's pretty cool. And now, Ben, we will uh, we'll have to flip the album. So when you have an album a version of this, Sub Rosa Subway and Side One, and we're going to flip over, and we're going to go see Somebody New, a true life hero true to life start hero. the album. That was a bad cool. transition. No, it, it's <laughs> good. Um, do you have the vinyl of this? Yeah. Nice. I want to go. Oh, actually, we should, we should, I should tell you the story. That's my very first vinyl. I bought three vinyls. For my to start my very collection, and that's one of them. Huh, that's yeah. cool. That's how much I really love this album. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I want to go to a record store and see if I can find this one there. Yeah, but if you don't, um, I think I saw one at Cheapo, and I can double check for you. Okay. Yeah, they're give usually they're usually cheap. So <laughs> there's there's a couple record stores around, and if we if we take the long way, or we have some time. We can go swing by a record store or two and just check it out. Dude, that'd be sweet. Um, anyway, nice. track number five is True Life Hero. <laughs> It's rocking. It's heavy. It's very classic rock. I love it. It's so good. I really love that cymbal ride that starts it. That's really, I mean, it's like grand funk. It's like almost deep purplish again. This is kind of kicking in. Um, it, in case you uh, maybe would have thought about it, um, Anus of Uranus and True Life Hero, this is a very similar vocal. So there's a lot of uh, theories in my family that this is uh, also Denny Lane. Actually, this is a Denny Lane tune if this is the Beatles. Mm, that makes sense. I think as the song opens up, so it's got this that rock and riff. At about forty eight seconds, they do a little bit of that transition and they add in the ahs again, mm-hmm. and it's cool because it just kind of breaks up the monotonous, the monotony of that riff. Not to say the riff is bad because I could listen to this riff all day, but it's one of those thoughts of like let's change it up a little bit and just like the the claps and was that. In Sub Rosa Subway, there's the boom, boom, boom. It's that same kind of concept of like, how can we add some elements in there to to distinguish it a little bit? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh, to talk about like a riff being monotonous. I mean, if somebody's just living off of a of a riff for a song, sometimes that's not the best you know formula. You can get away with it if if you got some good lyrics or it is a, like a dynamite little riff. You know, kind of like uh, satisfaction. Uh, What's the uh, Seven Nation Army by uh, uh, White Stripes? You know, like mm-hmm. you can get away with it. This song definitely needed something to kind of like get away from that riff a little bit and still allow you to enjoy it for what it was. Yep. Cool concept to this song, too, just being about a true life hero. And this the singer kind of just tells a different story in each verse of just what it's about. And the first one just starts off, he's saying, the last time I went swimming, I started to drown. In my head, it went down. And then the lifeguard, he jumped in, grabbed hold of my hair, pulled me to the ground. He was a true life hero. Mm -hmm. And kind of sets that up in verse two. 
um, wonder what it'd be like to be the ultra maroon who is the first on the moon. So just kind of setting the stage for these different heroes. There's not much else to this song. It's not overly complicated. I don't think there's lyrics that you need to read into. It's kind of a cool surface level story. Yeah, and isn't it kind of weird that when the two songs on here that we're kind of like maybe attributing to Danny Lane are kind of the two songs that they do not mention in that radio program. There's eight songs on the album. They only mention six. Yep. You know, and yep. there's a reason why these two don't stand out because there's literally nothing that really ties anything to anybody. Um, you know, um, there's musically, there's kind of some off stuff, but you can still kind of pick out a little bit of Beatleism, but it definitely sounds different than what uh, the rest of the album sound. Not that it's bad, it, it, that's definitely not what we're saying, but it definitely has a nice little different sound than what we have in, but they still tie together. One thing I think worth noting on this song too is the drum work. I think the drums are very, very good. They're all over the place. They flow with the transitions, and they don't just stick to your, you know, your classic just like they're they're all over the place. And it's cool. It's it's one of those you almost have to listen to the whole song because there's so many different points to talk about. But in the verses, in the choruses, they really get into and they're just driving hard, just and they're doing all this stuff. So it's it's really cool. Give it a listen to the whole thing and just focus on the drums alone. And this song is pretty good. Yeah, what I really loved about the drums was they're kind of like little kick into the uh, the guitar solo at about buck thirty. So the drums kind of kick in about one twenty seven, and it leads into this kind of like groovy, kind of a mix of like early eighties vibe plus like that seventies rock version. And it's a really good, it's a really good punching solo, I think, without it being like super rocky it has a lot of different effects working with it but the drums were the kick into that and it was just a nice little transition again that that uh whoever this band is the beatles or more or somebody else um they really put some effort into a lot of their songs here i think yeah the that drum part so the drum fill just going into the chorus those are triplets and triplets were really popular in the 70s and pretty much mastered and controlled by John Bonham of Led Zeppelin. Just those really cool sound. Even to this day, you hear it all over the place because it just sounds so cool. And so those triplets that kind of lead into that little solo really kind of set it up and bring help bring the solo to another level. Oh, definitely. You know, and that's kind of, I don't know why, but when we get to the ending here about, you know, kind of about 240 in, when he when they kind of rip into that guitar solo, and he kind of still sings "True Life Hero," I really got like a Ted Nugent vibe for some reason. I don't know why, mm. but it kind of felt like it kind of felt like it would be like something I could see him like picking up and just rocking, you know. Sure. Just because of the guitar work, I think he'd be able to do something similar and then maybe elaborate a little bit more. But, you know, I, mm-hmm. Whatever reason, Ted Nugent popped in my head. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't pick that out, but now that you mention it, I can definitely hear that because he's kind of got that clean piercing tone with that classic rock background so yeah i could see how you could hear that now what do you think about this ending of the song it uh it kind of goes you're kind of carrying on it's it's like a semi kind of fade but then it gets a little bit cut off before it gets to that next song so kind of did you recognize that little cut off by chance kind of to me it sounds more just like a fade out so what are you what are you going on about well, Explain I feel like more. that there's, I think when you listen to that ending part, 
there is that little blip. It feels like it's not fully faded away. It feels okay. like it's still there and prominent, but then there's that little blip, and then it kind of just cuts cuts into the next song, like it's like it's surgery. Mm. Okay, I might have to give that a few more listens because I'm not hearing it. Okay, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. It's also a transition, doctor surgery. Remember, get that? No. Did you get okay. that? Damn it! I clearly, I clearly, I did not. <laughs> well, you know what? Um... Yeah, let's go on the next track then. All right. Comment. (laughs) Track number six is Dr. Marvello. This is a song that it's one of those you hear it and you're thinking Beatles instantly. A very George-like psychedelic song, kind of even sounds like him, but it's just, it's that very Beatles psych sound, the bass kind of thumping, doom, 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 kind of along with the me- the lo- the vocal melody, it just really sets a stage, and as you're listening, if you're trying to listen to this objectively, you're like, how is this not the Beatles? That opening has kind of like a nice little slow droning but it also has that little poppy bass that kind of pops in. So with, yep. uh, with the vocals, um, I just really love that eerie feeling that it kind of gave off to um, in the beginning with that little electric organ, kind of keeping that first um, that first couple of, of verses, just keeping that eerie feeling to it. And then obviously that sitar pops in. And of course, everybody goes, ah, George. <laughs> yep. How you doing? And that that sitar kind of saves the song from being um, as eerie as it is. It kind of feels more exotic now. It kind of feels like there's going to be a purpose to this mission. And then, um, you know, this one has a couple movements in it too. Yeah, I love when that sitar comes in. So it kind of separates the first verse a little bit, and you have that sitar transition. And then when the verse continues, that's when the energy picks up. And all of a sudden, like, I found myself just kind of, you know, listening to this song, and then that part comes in, and then that second half of that first verse comes in, and, like, that's when you start to feel it. You Really, if you're really listening, it grooves so hard, and it feels so good, and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm totally into this song. Let's go. Yeah, and this actually, this is, like, probably the most diverse song on the album so far as we've come through. This is the sixth song now, and this really has a completely different flavor and sound um, than anything else that came on the album Mm -hmm. yeah this is very different flavor very psychedelic very slowed down maybe shades you know if you want to call calling occupants of interplanetary craft that's kind of psychedelic but it's Mm -hmm. in a different style than what this dr marvello song is yeah i would definitely say calling occupants is kind of a closer to like a pink floyd um psychedelic rather than the flower power kind of a version you know like i'm talking about like early 70s in mid 70s pink floyd kind of psychedelic almost um a very good point calling occupants has those movements but it's a little more i would say like you know tie and suit versus this one where it seems like it's hey we're wearing the the flower power stuff almost I want to give a shout out too to the storytelling in this song because you mentioned it feels that eerie feeling that the song creates and the lyrics really paint an awesome picture. So one line when that second 
part of the verse starts and he says, oh, so bland was our condition. We summoned black magicians to wave a wand or two. And the the scene that that creates, because the whole idea going from the first part is my love and I were thinking how low our boat was sinking and it creates this picture with the music. And it's I have such a vivid image in my head of this small like rowboat with two people in it and they're on a big lake or an ocean or something, but you can't tell because it's so foggy and dense. All you can really see is the boat and a little bit of the water around it and the people in it. And that's kind of the image that's created in my head from these lyrics and this music. So it creates just this really dark spell. And Mm. when he says we summon black magicians to wave a wand or two, creating this scene of desperation that they were so desperate to get out of this situation that they called upon dark magicians to come help them to help save them. Yep, good pointing out on the lyrics too because I wanted to bring that up and what you what you said there is actually really cool because of the storytelling is of its own version from what else we've heard in this throughout this whole album including the last two songs. So this story is a very good one. This one also has some connections to the Beatles. The Beatles had a song called Dr. Robert off of Revolver in 1966. There are very similar calls in the lyrics, uh, most specifically uh, right after I think it's the verse after you had just mentioned with the uh, black magicians uh, to wave a wand or two. It goes into, um, if that is all you want, then I may be of service. If all you want is love, well, I may know a special man whose love machine turns can't to can. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of a lot of um, Dr. Robert's lyrics as well. You know, ring my friend. I said you'd call Dr. Robert day or night. He'll be there anytime at all. Dr. Robert, Dr. Robert, you're a new and better man. He helps you to understand he does everything he can, Dr. Robert. So very similar storytelling in, in, in the, the, the way that they're expressing how uh, things can be helped. So that's one of the main things that you would see in the lyrical connection uh, with um, Dr. Robert and Dr. Marbello, the Beatles versus Clot too, almost, you know. Yep. So let me ask you, how did you like the solo um, in Dr. Marbello here? It, it's... This is one of the clues uh, that Sam Smith felt like this sounded like Blue Jay Way from Magical Mystery Tour. To me, it does sound almost exactly like it. Plus, plus the production value on the solo sounds very similar to the 67 Magical Mystery Tour. This was a solo that didn't super stand out to me. And I think that's why I don't have many notes on it. Um, Because I think what I was more enthralled by was the movements itself. So you have the beginning kind of dark movement. And then over this whole period of about a minute, 15 or so to the end of the solo, it kind of takes like a positive upbeat abstract turn. And then you have this solo and it kind of sets the stage and then kind of brings it back into the original tone of the song when it gets more into that thumping. Doom, 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 doom. And so to me, that's more of what stood out was it's in the context of the totality of the song. Now hearing the solo, it it's interesting. It's very subtle. It's not a pronounced solo, kind of has like a reverse effect or something to it. Um, you know, so it really didn't stand out to me. 
Yeah, if you didn't know the Beatles catalog much as well as you know Sam Smith did in the '70s or myself, if you could just reference the song, um, it, it does kind of match up. But if you don't know Blue Jay way off the match from Mr. Tour, it would be difficult to re- really kind of concentrate on the solo because it does just seemingly just kind of pass on through, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Very quick. But when this song wraps up, and you mentioned this lyric when you were kind of talking about the Dr. Robert thing. It takes a twist because he introduces Dr. Morvello and you know he's the one who kind of can fix it. If that is all you want, then I may be of service. If all you want is love, well, I may know a special man whose love machine can turns can't to can with your mind in mind. And then at the end of the song, it's just repeating over and now we're fine and now we're fine. So kind of a cool journey, you know, from this scene of desperation to now being fine and everything's good, thanks to Dr. Novella. Yeah, and then kind of, it, it's a great segue into the next song when you think about it, because the next song is kind of in this, in the next realm, it's kind of like a, a, a loopy one. You're, it kind of feels like a play playful area in your mind almost. So mm-hmm. um, I think that it's a fun transition of an of, of, uh, album. A song going to a song I think and it's still that connected piece it's still a good story kind of connector I think and uh, ready to go on to Sir Bottle Sir Bodsworth track number seven I'll take it from here track number seven is <laughs> Sir Bodsworth Rugglesby the third well it kind of feels like uh like a kids show we're kind of on with that beautiful kind of like wind instruments kind of kicking in and just kind of like a little bumping bass you know it's yep. kind of a, a unique introduction almost just with the instrumentation and that honky tonk piano mm-hmm. it's got that whimsical beetle-ish kind of sound mm-hmm. so this vocal is like a very rough it kind of feels very um you know, ogre-ish, kind of like Shrek. You know, I kind of, I kind of recognize it to that name. So it feels like it's in this, you know, um, just playful universe that's not our own. It's almost, it feels like kind of it could be like a fun, cartoony universe. Yeah, the vocals, it's very striking, and I really still don't know what to make of it. I think I've started to appreciate it more. When I first heard this song, I didn't really care for it. But the more I heard it, and once I really read into the story of it, I began to like it more and more. Because at first, I had thought that the singer was Sir Rugglesby, but the singer is not. The singer is singing about Sir Rugglesby, not Mm -hmm. himself. And he's painting the story of who Sir Rugglesby was, and the whole idea was like, he bet... he. Put this wager on the line, ten thousand pounds and five. I'm the only man who'll get to hell and come back alive. So, kind of painting the scene of like he kind of did this on a bet to to go to hell and come back, and that's kind of what this whole song is about. Yeah, it's it's definitely a weird song. When I first, you know, when my uncles introduced me uh, to this uh, conspiracy of the Beatles being Clatu. I listened to this song and it freaked me the fuck out. I had no clue what to do with this song. Mm-hmm. So I literally have never really given it a chance until um until just now, until the last uh you know, couple of weeks that we've been studying this album where I'm just like, I love this song. This song is 
very good. It's fun. Um, it's cheeky, but it's it's just it, it it rides well. It's got so much in the production. Uh, the the female vocals when they kind of do the call and response about like one twenty in into there, I think those are just delicious and they just add to this like kind of like a cartoony feel to this whole thing. It's just an excellent fill in, and then also there's the men's vocals that come up just a little bit after that, where it's the deep deep. He's the only man you know, Just so fun It's just uh, kind of choral as well So it's like it's really watching a choir Kind of like have fun Yep Will you touch on So this song was referenced a lot In our last episode About how it could be tied to the Beatles And the message that's behind it Will you touch on that a little bit? Nope, that's a very good point there, Ben uh, So looking back at my notes here Um when they mention this song, they kind of mention about how the Beatles would never reunite. And so the Beatles were offered, you know, $50 million by many different people, including Lauren Michaels on Saturday Night Live. Um, but the main uh, thought was, is that the Beatles were so bitter from the breakup that they would never play together. And Lennon thought Paul had gone to hell and, you know, um, it, after the Beatles breakup, just because they were pretty bitter against each other. So they say with that reference of coming to hell, going to hell and coming back um they're thinking that lennon and mccartney you know they wrote the song in reference to mccartney going to hell and coming back to help form the beatles um to kind of save mccartney almost um but there's also sir bodsworth is officially pronounced as dead in the song um, so those are initials are OPD. Um, on the Sgt. Pepper album, McCartney is the only one wearing an OPD badge. Nobody, No other Beatles wearing an OPD badge. And so they kind of think, well, there's the perfect connection right there. What a streamlining idea, you know? Right. It's pretty cool. And that line in the song, so that kind of starts off the second verse. Now in the fall of 49, he skipped across the seven brine this time, looking for a berth in naval history. T'was never heard nor seen again, officially presumed as dead. And that's the line in there. So being officially presumed as dead, tying to Paul wearing the OPD badge, Mm -hmm. that's where this song makes a lot of connection. Okay, this might be Paul, who's come to hell and back alive. And then we find out later in the song um, that Sir Rugglesby does come back. Mm-hmm. And I, the line that stands out to me that I kind of like is, "Then one night, while tripping down the English, while tripping down the English coast." I think that's funny because the song it implies sailing down the English coast, but obviously there was lots of acid and LSD involved. Um, so I, I kind of like to read into it as he was tripping on acid. Um, yeah. The moon is wider than a ghost when I heard a voice yell through a megaphone. And thereupon the midnight sea, a signal lamp signaled me. And who else could it be but good old Rugglesby? Oh, and we should also mention that during the uh, original print of this, it wasn't uh, Sir Bodsworth Rugglesby, it was Sir Bodsworth Rubblesby. Yes. You know, and so. That is kind of important because I'm looking at my notes of where that was. So give me a second. Ah, so on the back of the album, the the cover or the song title Rubbles Rugglesby was misspelled as Rubblesby. Defining Bods B O D S and Worth W O R T H, then Rubble 
R-U-B-B-L-E and by B-Y equals, in translation, persons of importance born of quarrying. And of course, the Beatles started off not as the Beatles, but as the quarry men. So they kind of think that's a that was on purpose, purposely done to uh, kind of like draw people to uh, to make the Beatles connection. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. The fact that they intentionally misprinted the name of the song on the back of the album as as another clue. Again, that could be a clue easily done without having to be the Beatles, but very cool the extent that they went to to drop these little hints in there. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's one of them that you just kind of think, ooh, well, that's an odd thing to happen, you know? Because a G and a B don't look the same, so you think they had to have done it on purpose. Absolutely. There is one cool little thing I want to bring up just about songwriting and song composition. So right at 222, and he's singing... So he he's singing, and there upon the midnight sea. So this is right after he starts to hear this voice yell through the megaphone. And there upon the midnight sea, a signal lamp signaled me. What's really cool about the music of this is starting that line, and there upon, it's actually sung by backup vocals. And mm-hmm. it's just a very randomly input thing, but it's something that has to be so intentional musically because they don't really do that throughout the song. There's backup singers throughout, but for some reason the backup singers introduce this next line by setting it up by going and thereupon and then he goes and thereupon and so it's just kind of cool musical composition and songwriting and that's the kind of stuff that just really inspires me and fascinates me as a music fan to hear that stuff and when you pick it out it's just so cool because mm-hmm. you can listen to the song and 10 times and never hear it but if you're listening for it it's just those cool little things that come up yeah no that's a very good little piece that part right there also kind of reminds me um just the music and the way that they're singing those vocals is very similar to um octopus's garden from um abbey road too yep yep has a very good clean clean recording and a very nice little response and, and playful kind of a sound yep all right, we're uh, probably on the ultimate song, aren't we, Ben? We are. Track number eight, Little Neutrino. You know, I got to admit, this opening scene, or the opening scene, the opening a uh, few 30, 50 seconds here, Kind of felt like uh, something out of Kraftwerk's catalog almost. It's just like playing with just sound, starting very, very small, or very, uh, very uh, not loud. Um, and then all of a sudden it just kind of like builds up, but it's not like a heavy, heavy build up either. Interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't picked out Kraftwerk's. That's, I haven't listened to a lot of Kraftwerk's, so it's an interesting connection. But yeah, it's just kind of a droning, slow build to this eight-minute song. This song is quite a long song, and compared to the whole album, between this track and track number one, it's about 15 minutes total, and this album is about 36 minutes total. <laughs> so those two songs are nearly half of the album. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of crazy that you would... I've, I've never really seen this before, where 
you have your two longest songs, the first one and the last one. So it's kind of cool that they 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 did it that way. Um, one of the things that is, I don't know, for me when you when you get this op- this opening takes a little bit too long for my taste, but the mm-hmm. rest of the song is very good. Like they could have kind of cut that a little bit off because it takes one minute to finally get to that flute. Yeah. And so I don't know how they're trying to incorporate that uh, space into um, the storytelling of the song. So I, I kind of got confused about that. Yeah, I would agree. It kind of takes a while to get going. So musically, at least the very beginning doesn't do much for me because I'm just like the first few times I listened, like I almost thought like, did it pause? What's going on here? And it's just like there's not a lot happening. So I'm just almost sitting there kind of twiddling my thumbs waiting for the song to actually kick in. Yeah, and and then finally, about a buck thirty-five in, the vocals come on, but they're mostly disguised behind this robotic vocal effect, and it really is, I mean, it piques your interest a little bit, but you do have to kind of listen really, really hard to kind of understand what they're trying to say, but it's kind of feels like it's the connection, finally. It's like that final connection. So I think, now that I'm just thinking out loud, um... I think really what that space in the beginning is kind of more or less like where the message is going to. And this is the side where they're, um, no, this is the other side. Uh, Maybe a little neutrino is supposed to be the other side. Mm, That's interesting. Once the first set of lyrics is finished, when you really start to get into the song. So it comes in at about two minutes and 30 seconds when Mm -hmm. you start to really feel the power and emotion And the words that are sung is, it's only you, it can't be me, for I myself refuse to be, I am someone you'll never know, I am the little neutrino. And what I find very cool about this is this song, especially this phrase, could be referencing this whole conspiracy and kind of addressing it head on, especially the line, for I myself refuse to be, I am someone you'll never know. You know, so kind of like, haha, you're never going to know who we are. And I'm putting this in the song to address it. But then to kind of position yourself as the little, little neutrino is kind of cool. So for those of you who are unaware of what a neutrino is, it's a subatomic particle that carries no charge and it's very hard to detect. But it's one of the most abundant particles in the entire universe. And they pass through our body trillions every second. But they're so hard to detect and they're so small. So to present it as like, yes, I'm this subatomic particle that exists and is so abundant, but you'll never see me and never know who I am is kind of cool. And to me, kind of addresses Mm -hmm. everything and just kind of puts a little bow on it. Oh, definitely. And, you know, when you look at a little bit deeper into it, it's it's kind of like saying, hey, we're all carbon atoms here. We're all we're all part of the same structure. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we just want to make contact with you. So it still fulfills that story of wanting to make contact and then at the same time looking at that other end possibly and and trying to say, you know, we want to make contact too. And on that same note, later in the song, he says, as it wraps up, and now I'm passing through the one who's known as you and you'll never know I do. So kind of continuing to play on that same message, but really setting it up again is like, you're listening to this music so I'm passing through the one who's known as you so this music is coming through you and yet you'll never know I do in a way it kind of to me that could be saying like you're listening to this and you're hearing me but you're never going to know who I am or you know how I'm getting through to you 
Oh, very good point. Was that the section about like 418 in? Yep, exactly. Yes, yep. See, I really love that section. So you got the lyrics of that part. I really love that middle section because of the, the, the music in it. It just has that, you know, it stops the machine and it has this just open openness of space and sound behind it mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And that machine of music just is not, um, it's just not uh, kind of prevalent, you know. Yep. And it adds a little bit of humanity, I think, is kind of where, you know, it's kind of like making a call. And it just kind of adds a little humanity to the song. Sure. So I don't have much else to say about this song. The The rest of the song is just kind of trippy, psychedelic-y sounds. And it sounds cool, but like I said, musically, this song just doesn't do much for me. It just really doesn't connect with me that much. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, the ending is really cool. I think that's the best part of the storytelling of the whole thing. The way that I look at it, um, just the buildup just feels sure. like it's this journey. It's like there's got to be a second, you know, there's got to be a second wave. There's there's this long, laborious journey ahead of them. And to me, it just kind of, I, I think it I think it holds off pretty well. You get some, you get some horns in there kind of near the end. But to me, when they're kind of like buzzing off at, near the, near the back end of the song it feels like it's this kaleidoscope of like trying to tell history or the foretelling of history almost Mm -hmm. and so i really like that aspect of it sure Um, but again yes there isn't anything that really stands out musically that's just like hey man there's a great guitar part that carries this or there's a bass line undertones or you know the orchestra is like really magical no it's just kind of bass it kind of goes you know all around um very much like uh, the beatles i want you she's so heavy where it's like they just jam on the same chord structure for about three minutes of that song. Yep. It's kind of the same thing that happens here at the end. Yep. Yep, pretty cool. I mean, the composition is great. The sounds are cool, but just not my favorite song. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, another kind of a craftwork kind of a connection there. Some of those sounds that they were adding at the end, I think, is it's a pretty good, uh, you know, pretty good connection, but it's, it's definitely not the level of craftworks. Like, we're, we're trying to... Uh, compare them to the Beatles if mm-hmm. they are not or are Beatles. Right. Well, I think we've reached the end of this album and we're getting to the end of our conspiracy <clears throat> quest. But before Jesse gives us the big reveal, let's do a quick overall album analysis and give our string ratings on this. All right. Sounds good. Ben, do you want to kick it off or do you want me to? I could start. Um, okay. You had introduced this album to me and this concept to me. I had never heard of Klaatu prior to you bringing this up to me. And I'm really glad you did because I then happened to stumble upon a great piece of music. I think this album is really good. Like I said, I was kind of fangirling over a lot of the crafting and composition of this album. So I think there's lots of little bits in here. I think the storytelling is fantastic. I think a lot of the drum work, guitar work, vocals, it's all very, very, very good. So I think it makes for a really good album. So my, I'm going to give this a five sharp because I think it's that good of an album. And it's definitely one that I want to have in my collection for a long time to come. And I think it's going to inspire and influence a lot of my songwriting styles and just thinking about those small little details, my own personal songwriting. So I think that's really, really cool. And that's why I give this such a high rating. And I think it's got that longevity. So I'm really excited to kind of keep this one around for a while. 
Oh, definitely. And you, you got to keep that, uh, you got to keep that story going in the, in society. You can't let this one die because not a lot of people really know about it. Um, so it, it's, it's a great one to have them collection. Um, kind of like how we discussed earlier, this is an album that when I very, very, very first bought my first set of vinyl that, which the collection now is up to 275, um, my first three vinyls were Texas Gold by Asleep at the Wheel, Long John Baldry's It Ain't Easy, and Claw 2, 347, Eastern Standard Time. And so this album has always been near and dear to my heart. I haven't really studied it other than like the main songs that they talked about that sound like the Beatles before um, and very well possibly could be. But I, there are three songs, uh, the final three songs, Dr. Marvello, um, Sir Bodsworth, and um, Little Neutrino, that in my youth, I never really liked. So I always kind of disregarded them. But I always knew that Marvello sounded very similar to George Harrison. Um, so I had a little respect for that one. But in studying this album out, I would tell you that my ranking of it before I started it, like when I was kind of initially bringing this up, I was kind of thinking it was going to be a low rating. But after studying it pretty well in depth and, you know, despite Little Neutrino not having much music into it, I think it's a wonderful production. Um, Colin of Occupants is one of my favorite songs. I love having that on all the time. Um, regardless if this is uh, the Fab Four or not, um, I gave this a six flat. Nice. Um, just because it really did, my my passion for this album really elevated listening it intently for four or five listens just to get prepped for this um, and all that. Um, so this is my first six flat, um, and it really did change it because it was great really diving into this album. It was wonderful. Um, it brought new perspectives to me, um, like you said, music writing style and kind of just looking at the controversy, the conspiracy, excuse me, as I keep mixing up the two. Uh, the conspiracy, um, it, it it adds a little more feel to it in my book. And so Six Flat is my highest rating on any vinyl so far, or any album we've done so far. So um, this one definitely has the mystique behind it. It has the actual musicianship behind it uh, and great storytelling. And so this one holds up. I think I could listen to this all the way through now as an adult and, and walk away still amazed and uh, very much in love with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So now, I think it's we've reached the moment of truth, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to tell us what's really going on? And so, in uh, join us for next week in part three of the reveal. No, just kidding. we drop the mic. Boo yeah. No. So um, we will go when we did the radio program when my father and my uncles had recorded the program. There was an announcement of who Klaatu was, and we'll play that little clip here at the end. I got to still send it to Ben. But they revealed that they were four musicians that were in Toronto, and they are truly Canadian musicians. However, one of the musicians never really actually recorded with them, but he is the one who wrote True Life Hero in uh, California Jam, actually. Uh, he had co-written them with the lead singer, John Woolishuk. Uh, he's a guitarist and songwriter out of um, out of Toronto, Canada. And then they also had Terry Draper, who was the drummer. He actually is a huge Ringo Starr enthusiast, and he actually has a um, YouTube video where he talks about the song Calling Occupants, uh, where he talks about the drum track and the whole track in general. And then they also had another guitarist named D. Long, um, who kind of joined in after... Terry Brown, the co-producer, who was mentioned into um, 
the radio program, uh, kind of got these guys together and signed them to the record, and supposedly uh, they created this uh, album. Did they go into the clues and all the things? Did Is that discussed at all? Like how in-depth they went? Uh, who? the So Claw 2. So these guys, was this intentional to really make it sound like the Beatles and put all these clues in there to get people talking? Nope. They were they were serious, just regular musicians. Uh, they knew like Rush. Uh, they, they've jammed with Rush before. Um, and so they literally just went in to do this project for the sole sake of saying, we literally just want the music to stand for itself. Now, that's that's all that they cared about. They didn't want their pictures up there, but they knew they could create some music, hopefully, and they certainly did. So none of those clues were intentional? Not that they have ever, ever revealed. They, you know, the one, uh, Terry, Terry Draper, the drummer, he actually says um, in the YouTube video that's, you know, calling occupants, Claw 2, uh, when he's just listening to it and giving notes, um, he's like, yeah, nothing was intentional. Um, I was a big Ringo fan, so that's where people get the drumming come from, you know. Um, and they said they were talked about how they were playing with uh, the certain, like, Moog synthesizer so that they could get the certain sounds. So he's like, all the flutes in there are from the, from the synthesizer, all this stuff. So they were just playful in the... Uh, in the studio, basically. So even the name Klaatu and the references to it with the Beatles, Paul McCartney saying, we'll see you when the earth stands still, that's all just coincidence? Supposedly. Supposedly. So so do you remember how I ended uh, the last episode by telling you what my theory was? Yes. So my theory is it is still the Beatles. Now, here's the thing. They... The Beatles were recording at some point or, you know, getting ready to get back together. And they were just using Toronto as kind of this pass through like studio. And so my idea is, is that, yes, everything that we talked about, you know, Denny Lane aspect, the, you know, the Paul and the George and all that stuff. I think that there are some aspects where the Beatles just happened to meet these musicians in the studio. And they said, hey, if we record with you guys, we'll just assume to release it under your guys' name, and then you guys take off. And so I think that's kind of like what I would still continue as what the conspiracy is. The Beatles could have just hid behind these three guys and said, hey, these are our songs we're thinking about making. Why don't we play with you guys? You can put your sound a little bit on here as well, but these are our songs. Yeah, I I would tend to agree with that. Because there is so much of a coincidence. I see this, the cynicism in your eyes when we were talking about this just now. It, I, I agree with you. And that's where I think my theory would be the, the toppermost of the poppermost. Yeah, there's there's just no way. Like, again, my like I said earlier, I think that it's probably not entirely the Beatles. But there's just too many clues. And I know one person could, like I said a million times... You don't have to be the Beatles to put all these clues into a song. So I get that. But there's no way that it wasn't intentional because that all those things don't happen by mistake. The come together again on Ringo's album, the Claw 2 versus the Hulk that was featured, what Paul said on stage, that doesn't just happen randomly. I guess technically in a world of infinite possibility, sure. 
But, you know, I'm still waiting for the day that my clothes end up in the dryer perfectly folded because the law of infinite possibility says that they will at some point. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's just too much going on for this not to be intentional in some way, shape or form. And the Beatles had to have been in on it, even if at minimum they were aware of it at minimum that they were just aware of this thing that was happening and played into it. But I I would have to agree with your statement. I think they have to be involved in this project in some way, even if they just wrote a little bit or recorded a little bit, like maybe Paul just sang on California jam. And like, that was his contribution to this whole album, but they, they had to have been involved in some way, shape or form. There's just no way that it didn't happen. You know, it's just these other guys that happened to produce this album. I just, Mm -hmm. I, and again, I'm not a guy who's into conspiracy theories. I, you know, the earth is round. The, I don't think planes drop chemtrails. Like, you know, that shit doesn't happen. <laughs> but this is one, it's like, okay, come on. Like, they had to have been involved in some way. Yeah, exactly. And you got to look at this. So the Beatles were very, they were pranksters. They were something that uh, right. the mainstream media back then, they, they didn't know how to handle the Beatles just in press conferences. So the Beatles were always willing to be able to, you know, Jones, uh, other people that weren't them. And so when you look at this, like John Lennon specifically wrote, I am the walrus because he thought people were reading too much into his lyrics. Mm-hmm. And he says, let's, let's, let's see if they can pull something out, you know, out of this. And it was just gobbledygook. And sure enough, they read a lot into it that, which was like, no, nah, J- Lennon just said, I just wanted to write this to fuck with you. Right. So they like to mess with people's heads. And so mm-hmm. what other band in the world could do this, um, and do it pretty well secretly as well, you know. Yep. But you're leaving little hints like that. It's either that they they were a part of it and now they're like, oh, shit, we're discovered, so we'll just kind of play it off. Or you would joke about it, like McCartney saying that thing, uh, yep. you know, see when the, the earth stood still. Um, you would think that maybe he caught on to the, 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 um, the conspiracy and was just doing it just to fuck with people. Right. I could see both avenues. Yeah. But to me, the musicianship is so good on this album that I really got to figure that they, you know, not that these people, uh, not that like John, Terry, or D, if they are Claw too, it's not like they needed, you know, to be like superstars like this, but um, right. not to put down their ability. But this is, this is really good musicianship mm-hmm. throughout this album. Yep. Yeah. It, yeah. I'd still say there's some question marks. Oh yeah. So it's not completely dead, but it's it's still fun to kinda like just rouse about and kinda toss this around around the ears, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So, Ben, I think the needle is about to lift off the album. Shall we uh shall we cut it off? Let's call it a day. All right, folks. Well thank you for listening to part two of our Claw Two Are They the Beatles kind of conspiracy. We wanted to bring to your ears, and now we got the album under uh, review. So please go out, listen to the album, listen to uh, some more conspiracies about uh, the Beatles and Cloud 2. It's just kind of fun to read up on it. If you stuck around with us without actually looking at the conspiracy, great. Uh, Thank you so much for joining in on us. But uh, if if you knew the answer all along, man, you're you're, you're better than what we are. (laughs) Goodbye. Peace. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our little mini-series, Conspiracy of Rock, and if the Beatles are, in fact, the band Clatu. You can find us on social media, on Instagram at On The Record Music, and on Twitter at OTRM Podcast. 
If you would right now that the episode is over, go ahead and leave us a nice little review on Apple Podcasts. Be much, much appreciated to help us get to a little more ears. Anyway, thank you. Have a great week and we'll see you next week.